Well, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we find ourselves again in chapter 27. If you're new to Calvary, then one of the things that, that we do is, is we'll take a book of the Bible, we'll start in the beginning, and we'll start teaching our way through. We find ourselves in chapter 27 this week. We're in the final stretch, only a, a two or three more weeks, and we'll be actually finishing this book. We've been in this book, it seems like, forever. Just to let you know that after we finish this book, we're going to go into the book of Philippians which is a very small book, and uh, it's very practical, lots of great great stuff in there for us, so uh, be reading ahead as we go. Well, as our story picks up today, this is going to be the day that Jesus goes to the cross. Now, you'll recall if you've been part of our study over the last couple of weeks that Jesus woke up the morning before he spent time with his heavenly Father, and then he would go and he would teach, obviously doing some healings in that time. He celebrates the night before, he celebrates what we call the Passover, the Last Supper. He then leaves there and he goes out to pray with his disciples. That goes late into the evening. He's betrayed by Judas. We talked about that last week. And uh, then he's ultimately arrested. He's taken back to the high priest's home. And at that place, there are, we, we didn't have all the details last week. We, we just looked at what Matthew shared. But there were actually several times where Jesus was beaten. He was blindfolded. And so he hasn't had anything to drink, hasn't had anything to eat. He's been awake now for 24 hours. And uh, our story is going to pick up very early in the morning, before 6 a.m., before the followers of Jesus find out what's going on, because if they find out what's going on, there are hundreds of thousands of them in Jerusalem at this time for the Passover, and if they found out what was going on, there would be a riot of what you and I would call of biblical proportions. So the, uh, the religious leaders want to get Jesus executed as early as possible before anybody finds out. So we're going to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 27, 1 and 2. It says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to uh, Pilate, the governor. Now Pilate is the Roman governor. And at that time, the nation of Israel is under the Roman Empire. Being under the Roman Empire, they no longer have the uh, ability, the right to give capital punishment. So they want to get him to Pilate, the Roman governor, hopefully to get him to okay the execution. Verse 3 and 4 takes a little turn. It says, when Judas who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. Now my Bible says remorse, hopefully your your Bible does. Some of your Bibles will say um, repented, but that's not, uh, repented is a very different word in the original language. The best word there is remorse. And returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself, see to that yourself. So um, again, uh, most of your Bibles will say um, that he felt remorse. Again, the word repented is, is very, very different. Judas feels bad because this is not turning out the way that he had planned. Many people believe that Judas thought that he was doing Jesus a favor in, in, uh, in betraying him. The idea is he wanted to get 
Jesus into a situation to where Jesus would have to prove who he is, and uh, Judas felt that would be the best way. That's not, the Bible doesn't say that, that's just a conjecture that many people have. But now he realizes what it is that he's done, he wants to get rid of his guilt, so he throws that back to them, the 30 pieces of silver. Verse 5, it says, then he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and went away and hanged himself. Verse 6, the chief priests and the, uh, the, uh, the chief took the pieces of silver and said, is it, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And so they conferred together with the money and, and bought a potter's field, an underlying potter's field, as a burial place for strangers. Now for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which is spoken through Jeremiah, and I've underlined Jeremiah, we need to talk about that, the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver and the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So Matthew is, is giving an overview here. You'll recall that the, uh, if you've been following our study, the other gospel writers will focus in on the events where Matthew focuses in on the teachings of Jesus. So sometimes all the details won't be there in, in Matthew's gospel. There in Jerusalem, if a stranger came to town and they died there in Jerusalem and there was nobody to claim the body, it was the responsibility of the temple to bury, to bury the body. So um, there was a piece of property which was called the potter's field and, uh, and so they decided to buy that piece of property. Now it's important to know that, that uh, it's not that they decided that morning but um, over time, maybe the next week or so, they made that decision. Matthew is writing several decades after the event, and he's telling us what took place, but it could have been another week or so before they found the piece of property, before they purchased it. Apparently, it was a, a pretty good deal. When it says that Judas went and hung himself, um, it does not say that Judas hung himself in that field. Uh, many people kind of read that into it, but there's nothing to say that Judas hung himself in that field. Uh, when, uh, when the story is told in the book of Acts, it, it seems to imply that Judas hung himself and nobody found him for several days. So we don't really know where Judas actually hung himself. Verse 9, it says, but th- then that which was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. Now, it quotes and it says, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and it goes on. The, the problem with that is that's not actually in the book of Jeremiah. That's actually in the book of Zechariah. And so uh, what's going on here is there was a, I would say, a practice, a custom, a way that they cited things. Write this down and, and uh, I'll unpack it for us. But Matthew here refers to the better known prophet. So there's a couple of times in the Bible, in in the New Testament, where they refer to something that took place in more than one place in the Old Testament, but they don't cite the minor prophet, they only cite the major prophet. So Jeremiah is a major prophet, you know, like 50 some chapters, whereas Zechariah is a very, very small book, and so he, he cites that. One place where this is uh, very evident is there in your outline. If you were to read the book of Mark, Mark's gospel, it opens and it says, as it is written in Isaiah. 
and underline Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. Then it goes and it says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now the problem with that is that's not in Isaiah. I put the address there. That's in Malachi, which is a minor prophet. But then it goes on to say, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Well, that is in Isaiah. But when Mark is writing this, he only cites the major, the major prophet. So Jeremiah is the major prophet. And there are several places in Jeremiah that allude to purchasing a field with silver. And so for instance, one place that Matthew apparently sees as an allusion to this would be in Jeremiah 32. I just uh, put one line there and kind of condensed it. It says, by my field, I bought the field, I weighed out the silver. And you can read it. And, but Matthew sees an allusion to what's happening here. Another time is in Jeremiah 18, where Jeremiah is told to go down to the potter's field. And uh, it says, go down to the potter's house and go and buy potter's earthenware. And then it goes on in Jeremiah 19. He says, I'm about to bring calamity. And here's why, because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. So he sees an allusion there to referring to this, but more clearly, uh, Zechariah is probably a lot clearer for you and I. But he's not cited because he's a minor prophet. Not that they had anything against minor prophets, they just, they, everybody knew, knew Jeremiah and that. So about 500 years before Jesus is born, Zechariah writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, realizing that he is writing down prophecy, but he doesn't understand yet what it really means. So there in your outline. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. I, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So it says, the Lord then said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. God says, I was only valued by them with 30 pieces of silver. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. When the Lord says the price that I was valued, uh, Jesus was valued at 30 pieces of silver. The idea, and when it says I was valued, that's, it's saying that Jesus is God. Essentially, I was valued. So it's an allusion to Jesus being God. It's not a lot of money. It's a few months' salary, depending uh, you know, on your occupation. But ultimately, that money will be thrown down in the house of the Lord, but it will go to the potter. So it becomes a prophecy that would take place 500 years in the future. So just letting you know where that comes from. Back to our story, verse 11. It says, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Now, it's important to, re- to remember, this is very early in the morning. The sun probably has not even come up at this point the religious leaders want to get Jesus killed on the cross before the followers of Jesus wake up. Matthew will condense the account. The other gospel writers tell us that that more took place. Matthew just tells us of the second time in this very early morning meeting that Jesus stands before Pilate. So there on, on your outline, when they bring Jesus before Pilate, Pilate says, what did he do? And so this is their big accusation as they begin. There from John's gospel, it says, they answered and said unto him, well, if this man were not an evildoer, 
we should not have delivered him up to thee. You know, it's like if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. That's good enough, wouldn't you say? So, so that, you know, they don't really give any solid kind of accusations at this point. It goes on in verse 12, it says, and while he was being accused, and I've underlined that, by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard even to a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Pilate, the governor, is amazed that Jesus is not responding. Typically by this point, seeing Jesus beat up from the evening before and all that took place, he would expect that Jesus would be begging for his life, giving all kinds of defenses as to why he's not guilty, but Jesus isn't saying anything. So they are accusing Jesus. Now it's in Luke's gospel where they become a little bit clearer in their accusations, a little bit more defined. It says, before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, there in your outline, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So here, when they're saying misleading our nation, the idea is that uh, misleading our nation against Rome because he's tying it. But Jesus has never said anything against the Roman Empire. He's spoken against the religious leaders, but not against the Roman Empire. They say he's forbidding people to pay taxes. But actually, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And so that's a complete lie. But then they say they know that they need some type of political accusation in order for Pilate to become interested. So they say he claims to be a king. And uh, that would be concerning. A king would be a challenge to the Roman Empire. So Pilate, the governor, then goes back to Jesus there on your outline, and John tells it. And Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and called Jesus and said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, he says, yes, but then he says, my kingdom is not of this world. So yes, they are, but he's going to also go on. I didn't put it on your outline, but he would say, if my kingdom was of this world, my followers would be rising up and they'd be fighting. But my kingdom is not of this world. To which Pilate listens in on that and says, all right, well, that's not really an issue for us as Romans. You know, if you're king of another world or something, that's, that's fine. So in Luke's gospel, it says, then Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. So that's, that's kind of what's going on. Now, what we're going to find in this as we begin to unpack this, very important for us, as they bring Jesus before Pilate, this governor, he wants to remain as neutral as possible before Jesus. So go ahead and, and, and write this down. I'll show you how this works. Pilate wants to remain neutral about Jesus, but we'll learn that everyone will have to make a decision about Jesus. God's not going to let anybody be neutral about Jesus. So as, as Pilate goes on over the course of the next hour or so, he's not going to want to take a stand for Jesus. He's not going to also want to take a stand against Jesus. He wants to try to be as neutral as possible. So he begins to think of ways that he can get out of making a decision against Jesus or for Jesus. Well, one of the things that he decides is that he hears that Herod, who's the local king, Pilate's the Roman governor, but the local king is in town, so he thinks maybe I'll send him over to Herod, and Herod can make a decision there in your outline. 
when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem. So Herod examines him, and uh, Herod, the problem is that Herod then sends him back to Pilate. So what Pilate thought he was getting off of his plate has just come back to him. So once again, he's in that situation where I have to make a decision. So Pilate begins to think, is there any other way that I can remain neutral about Jesus? I don't want to condemn him, but I also don't want to endorse him. So, so what do I do? So he comes up with this really great idea, and Luke tells us about it there in your outline. Pilate, having examined, says this, he says, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Therefore, this is the big idea, I will punish him and release him. Pilate thinks this is going to be pleasing to everybody. He thinks, you know, if I take Jesus and I punish him, I beat him up bad enough that the religious leaders are going to look on and say, yeah, you beat him up bad enough, that, that's enough, they'll be happy. And then Jesus will also be happy because, you know, he's not dead. So, you know, being not dead is good. So everybody's going to be happy with this decision. Uh, how do you think that's going to work out? It's not going to work out for him. So, so Pilate here is going to learn, like every one of us, that God will never allow us to be neutral about Jesus. We ultimately will all have to make a decision. So verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious, and I want you to underline that word notorious. Most of your Bibles will have the word notorious. Does your Bible have the word notorious? You want to underline that. So this is a well-known prisoner called Barabbas, and you want to underline that. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. Uh, Envy in the sense Pilate recognizes that they are envious of Jesus because the crowds are now coming to Jesus and not to the religious leaders. So in Matthew's gospel when we're told about this Barabbas, we're told that he is notorious, and uh, his name is given in all four of the Gospels. His story is told in all four of the Gospels. And anytime something happens in all four of the Gospels, it's very significant for us. So in Matthew's Gospel, we're told that he's notorious. In Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, it would say this, and I put it on your outline, that he had committed murder in the insurrection. And we'll talk about that. So he's a murderer, he's notorious, he's a murderer and an insurrectionist. Now, when John tells the story, he adds another detail and he says he's a robber, he's a robber. So this this guy has a very impressive rap sheet, wouldn't you agree? This guy's done it all. When it says insurrection, that means that he had led a group of people to rise up against the Roman Empire. Now, when there would be insurrections against the Roman Empire, Rome would respond by killing everybody, just just anybody involved. So this Barabbas would be hated by the Jewish people because many Jewish people were killed because of his actions. So he was a murderer, but he was also somebody who had, because of his actions, many good people killed. So he would be hated by, by the Jewish people. So as the story goes, verse 19, 
While he was sitting on the judgment seat, this is Pilate, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that. Now my Bible says righteous man. Your Bible might say it different, underline that. This righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So Pilate's wife has a dream. We would all assume, agree, that this dream comes from God. And uh, so she gets up in the morning, she makes sure, I send the message to Pilate, have nothing, don't, don't judge this man, don't punish him, just, just let that man go. Some of your Bibles will say that he is an innocent man. How many of your Bibles say innocent? Okay. Uh, my Bible says righteous. How many of your Bibles say righteous? Good. And another way that that word is translated is just. He's a just man. How many of your Bibles say that? So how that, that word can be translated all three ways. She is sending a message to Pilate saying he's a righteous, innocent, just man. Have nothing to do. Don't, don't, don't punish him in any way. So the question is, who is this Pilate, this governor, going to listen to? Well, we're going to pick it up in verse 20. And in verse 20 it says, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. The other gospels will tell you that they start saying, crucify, crucify, crucify. They start chanting. Verse 23, and he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. So here the religious leaders know how to influence Pilate. They, they realize that Pilate is going to be more influenced by the crowd, not his wife and not the evidence. And so he's going to make a decision about Jesus based upon what the crowd is saying. And uh, you and I know it's going to be the wrong decision. Many people in our generation make a decision about Jesus based upon what they hear the crowd saying apart from the actual evidence as to who he is. This is going to be a terrible thing for Pilate as, uh, as it continues. Verse 24, then Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood See to that yourselves. Um, uh, That was very common in those days to do something demonstrative to show everybody, I'm not guilty of this, this is your decision. Ultimately, he's still making the decision. Now, there on your outline, there is a word that many of our uh, Bibles leave out, but it's there in the original manuscript. So when Pilate says this, that I, that, uh, says Pilate washed his hands saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Underline the word just. Just person, see to it yourself. So here, even where Pilate is washing his hands, he's publicly before this crowd early in the morning declaring that Jesus is innocent, that he's a just man but he's still making a decision. He thinks that by washing his hands that somehow he's remaining neutral. Well, verse 25, it says, and all the people said, his blood shall be upon us and our children. Then, verse 26, you want to underline, he 
released Barabbas for them. But having Jesus scourged, some of your Bibles will say a little bit different, scourged or flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Handed him over to be crucified. We're going to pick this up next week here and walk through the events of the, the crucifixion. As you put the pieces together from the Gospels, you'll find that when Pilate has Jesus scourged or flogged, however your Bible says it, here, this is actually the second time that Pilate has had that happen to Jesus, has, has had Jesus flogged. And keep in mind, and we'll talk about this more next week, that Jesus has been up since the morning before. He's gone throughout the entire day, the entire night. He's been beaten several times. We looked at that last week through the night. And here he's been scourged or flogged uh, two times. Now, what's important to, to know is that it was not uncommon for people who were condemned to the cross to die at this scourging, this, this flogging. And uh, so but we'll talk about that next week. But ultimately, Pilate here had to make a decision about Jesus. And he tried to be neutral, but, but God never allows, God never allows people to be neutral about Jesus. And if anybody tried, it was Pilate. For every one of us, God brings us to the place where we have to make a decision about Jesus. There on your outline, one of the things that we find is that Pilate, like us, will forever be known for the decision that he or we made about Jesus. So Pilate makes this decision and he sends Jesus to be crucified and he releases Barabbas. Now typically, when you read this, we kind of zoom through this, but I wanted to highlight this, this one aspect here, that when it says that he released him, that's an interesting word, I, I should have put it on your outline, but th- that word release can be translated as forgiven, uh, it's, it's released in the sense that you, somebody has a debt and they're set free from that debt. It's also a word that can be used uh, when they talk about divorce where somebody goes and they never come back. There, there's no coming back to this. This is, this is a settled issue and, and it's done. And he re- releases Barabbas. Now, this releasing of Barabbas is so important that it's told in all four Gospels. Anytime something happens in all four Gospels and they tell the same story, it's significant. It's the Holy Spirit's way of saying, don't miss this. This is infinitely important. In the Bible, names are important. Names are significant. So uh, we, we don't always break down the name. Like last week, we talked about how Jesus is taken before Caiaphas, who's the high priest. But if you were to look up Caiaphas, in a Greek dictionary, his name just means depression, because that's all he could bring is just depression, and there's a whole story there. But here, Barabbas is released. Now, if his name was Jim or Bob or George or you know some other name, we wouldn't think anything of it. But his name is Barabbas. Barabbas is released. There on your outline, Barabbas in the original language is a compound word. Bar Abba, which is Bar Abbas, or Barabbas. Bar is the word in that language for son. 
So like you're reading through and you come across something that says Simon bar Jonah. Well, it just means Simon, son of Jonah. That's what bar means. It just means son. And then you have Abba. Remember the place in the New Testament where Paul says, by which we cry out, Abba, Father? Abba just means Father. Literally, Barabbas, Bar Abba, just means Son of the Father. Son of the Father. This is here by design. It's in all four of the Gospels. Here's what the Lord is pointing to. You want to write this down. The Son of God will be put to death so that the son, Bar, of the father, Abba, can go free. The son of God will be put to death so that the son of the father can go free. The reason that this is here is because every one of us are Barabbas. Every one of us are Barabbas. For Barabbas to go free, the only way that he's going to go free is that the Son of God is going to step in and take what he was supposed to take. The Son of God is going to pay the penalty for what the Son of the Father, Barabbas, was supposed to pay. So when you look at Barabbas' situation, it becomes a picture of our salvation. Barabbas will be set free. But the only reason that he's being set free will not be because of his good life. Uh, He's not saved for his good life. He's not saved because of his good deeds. He's not saved for uh, his fixing himself or, or doing better. At this point, there's nothing that he can do to better himself. He has this condemnation. He is facing the cross. But before he goes to that cross, the Son of God steps in and pays the price for the Son of the Father. So far, so good? The reason this is there is to tell us a couple of things. First of all, for Barabbas, the son of the father, there is no other possible way of being released from that penalty of going to the cross except one thing and one thing only. The son of God will have to step into his place. When the son of God steps into his place, he is free Again, not because he's good, not because of his behavior, but because the Son of God steps into his place and takes that penalty. And so the Son of the Father goes free. It's a picture of salvation, and it's there by design. How many of you did not know that Barabbas meant Son of the Father? Good, you learned something today. We can close in prayer and just go home. So, but there's no other way. There's no other way. Christianity is that there is one way. Jesus says, I am the way. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And here he puts the Son of the Father, but the Son of God steps into his place so that the Son of the Father can go free. Christianity is built on that truth, that there's only one way. If you're here today, if you are here today, and you believe that there is any other way, any other way, but that the Son of God stepping into your place and paying that penalty, then you need to know that's not Christian. That is another religion that might look, smell, taste, feel very much like, but that is not. Christianity is Jesus is the only way. Don't miss that point because you might be embracing another thing that's not the truth. You don't want to embrace, embrace that lie. 
So I wanted to take, um, have you found that interesting so far? So I, I want to take a minute. Uh, we, we don't always break this down, and, uh, but sometimes we need to just talk about this so that we all understand. Uh, I, I think that Barabbas could have come and said, I don't accept that. You know, nobody pays the price for me. You know, can you imagine him? They're setting him free and goes to the Roman soldiers. Says, I, don't, I don't buy that. I'm not letting anybody step into my place. You know, if it's my thing, then I'm going to pay the price. Nobody's going to do that. See the Roman soldier going, oh, all right, well, we got an opening on Tuesday. If you can be here early, you know, get the flogging going. He just has to receive it. He just has to go. It's done for him. So I, I wanted to talk about how this works. You and I, and, and the part that, that we miss, you and I, because we are created in the image of God, we have a need for justice. Uh, other parts of the creation have no need for justice, but we have a need for justice because we are created in the image of God. So we have a taste. We have a taste of what God is inside of us. You've heard me say, 20 dogs live up and down your street, two dogs get into a fight over a pork chop, one dog rises up, kills the other dog. Do the other 18 dogs call out for justice? No, they just want to know what you're going to do with that pork chop. They have no need for justice. They are created, but they are not created in the image of God. You and I are created in the image of God. So we, unique in the creation, have a need for justice. So as you've heard me say before, we see on the news that somebody gets drunk, they drive 80 miles an hour through a school zone, they wipe out a bunch of kids sitting on the, on the bench, and we follow the trial. And as they go through the trial, as they go through the trial, they're found guilty, and then it comes time for sentencing. You and I are watching that. And they go before the judge, and we, we, the judge says, you're guilty, we have it on camera, we have witnesses, you're guilty, we know that you did it. But here's what I want you to know. We all know you're guilty, but I want you to know that I love you, I forgive you, you're free to go. Would any of us be okay with that? See, the reason we're not okay with that is because we are created in the image of God. We have a need for justice, and it wasn't even done for us. We have such a need for justice that we cry out for justice when somebody cuts us off on the highway. (laughs) Am I alone in this? You know, and we're, we, we want, somebody's got to pay for that, right? So the reason we have that need for justice is because we're created in his image and he put that inside of us. So you and I, we've done some things. You know, we, we, we've lied, we've, we've hurt people, we've, you know, we've done some things. We took the first commandment, which says, don't put anything before God. And we've lived a lot of our lives as though God was really unimportant. Uh, We are passionate about our children because we are created in the image of God. So as parents, you know, if somebody hurts you, you get over it. But somebody hurts your kid, it's war. Come on, you know it's true. Because we're created in the image of God. And here's what's happened Many of us, by our decisions, intentionally or unintentionally, we have done things that have hurt the Bar Abbas, the sons of the Father, and that's something where God says, you hurt that which I created, you used, you lied to, you, you disrespected. And so God says, I do love you, 
but somebody's got to pay for this because just like you need justice, I am justice. So God said this, and you've heard me say that, that, that somebody has to pay for that. So God says, but I love you so much, I can't bear to see you pay that price, just like Barabbas you know, would have to pay that price. So God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come to the earth as a man. And as a man, I'm going to step into your place and I'm going to die a horrific death and I'm going to pay the price so that Barabbas, the son of the father, can go free. goes like this. Verse we're very familiar with around here. They're in your outline from Isaiah. We read it every Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Make sure you underline He'll be the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He will come to the earth as a man, but he will still be the mighty God, the everlasting Father. God says, I will come to the earth and I will step into your place so that we, Barabbas, sons of the Father, can go free. Just like this there in your outline, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, just like Barabbas. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He stepped into our place and he paid the price so that we could go free. So here's our part in this, and Barabbas' part too, there in your outline. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even those who believe in his name, who were born not of, the blood, not of blood nor of the will of, man, of flesh or the will of man, but of God. When you and I receive what it is that he's done, we receive him, we become children of God. We would say bar abbas. We become the sons of God, sons and daughters of God. The only way that Barabbas was going to not face the cross was for the Son of God to step into his place. And that is the gospel because he stepped into his place Barabbas receives that, and then he goes free. Nothing to do with his behavior, nothing to do with anything other than accepting what it is was done on his behalf. As we close in prayer today, my hope, my heart as a pastor, is to make sure that every one of us understands the truth of what took place. The reason that this story is in all four of the Gospels is because we are all Barabbas. And the only way, the only way that Barabbas goes free, the son of, son of the Father, is that the Son of God takes his place and pays that penalty. Our part is to receive what he has done. So if you're here today, God loves you, his will is that you receive what it is that he's done for you. When you receive what it is that he's done for you, the Bible calls that being born again, calls it being saved. Here's what takes place. You say, I receive. I take that in. I accept. You paid the price for me. There was no other way. No other way but you stepping in. When we do that, and the reason the Bible calls it born again, being saved, uh, God's Spirit comes alive inside of us 
and it's a new life. And all of a sudden, things begin to change. Not that we manufacture change. You can never manufacture change. But when God's Spirit comes and He dwells within you, all of a sudden, the things that maybe we were doing, all of a sudden they don't feel right anymore. Because now we have His Holy Spirit inside of us. And He begins to work in our lives. And He begins to grow us. And it's whole new existence. But again, my hope, my prayer as a pastor is to make sure that every one of us understands exactly there was no other way for Barabbas to be released but that Jesus stepped into his place. And to make sure that every one of us has received that and understands that. And when you do, when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and begins to live and operate, again, things will be different. So as we pray today, I want you to have the opportunity to make sure that you've embraced the true gospel. There's only one way. Jesus is it. And uh, to make sure that you've embraced that and that he's dwelling within you and, and doing his work. So as we pray, you have that opportunity. Let's pray. Jesus, as we wrap this up today, Lord, the, you stepped into our place once for all, and uh, you paid the price, dying a horrific death on our behalf, releasing Barabbas, releasing us to those who receive. Lord, we recognize that the gospel, included in the gospel, is that you are the only way. There is no other way. Another way would not be the gospel. It would not be would not be truth. So here today we look to you and we say we receive. You've stepped into our place. You've paid the price. You've released us from that penalty, not because we're good, not because of what we've done, but because you chose to step in our place and we receive that. We invite you to step inside of our lives and that your Holy Spirit would begin to move and grow us and change us. Not that we will manufacture a change, but we'll listen to your spirit as you, as you illuminate and as you take us to that place as we follow you. And then, Father, we pray that you make us who you want us to be and that you use our lives in the way that you want to use them for your purpose. And from this day on, we'll follow you. Father, I thank you for this congregation, our hunger for your word and the things of you. And I pray, God, that you continue to keep growing us. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.